Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. This is The Secret Library Podcast. Welcome to Season 8, where our theme is wonder. For many of us, when we write, we focus on the end product. We focus on what we want to accomplish and getting it out into the world where others can read it. However, it's just as important how writing transforms our lives. What does writing change about how we experience the world around us? This season, we will have a series of conversations with people who look at how writing has impacted them how it has changed their everyday experience, what impact writing has had on their lives. I know you will love hearing these conversations as much as we loved recording them. And I hope that by the end, you will have found a pathway to wonder through writing yourself. My guest today is Tamsin Woodward, who discovered the Secret Library podcast during lockdowns in 2020 and was immediately hooked. After many decades struggling with her writing process and failing to make progress, so many half-finished drafts, she took Dream to Draft and Next Draft and now has a completed first draft of her novel, which she's currently revising. Tamsin lives in an area of outstanding natural beauty in the UK and is owned by two half-Maine Coon cats and a pair of feisty Icelandic horses. This is such a fun conversation that, as is true with every episode, I'm very eager to share with you for a number of reasons. In this conversation, we get into not only the wonder and adventure that can come from writing fiction, but also the opportunities we have to discover, challenge, and push back against conventions in the world that we disagree with. Tamsin and I look at genre fiction and our love of exploring it and writing it, and also the ways it, in her case, with romance, is a way to look at social convention and to open the conversation to something that is more subtle and more complicated. And at the end of the day, more progressive, more inclusive, and in a way can change the world. At least that's how I see it. I mean, we look at a genre like science fiction and how science fiction can show us a world that is different, but any genre can serve this purpose. Any genre can look at conventions and twist them and innovate them. And our conversation looks at how and why this happens and ways that we are particularly excited about working in this way. So we're looking at the magic, delight, and wonder of genre fiction today. And I'm very, very happy to introduce Tamsin Woodward.
Hi, Tamsin. Thank you for coming on to do this madcap experiment with me. <laughs> My pleasure. I'm excited. A little bit nervous, but excited. <laughs> I think that's how all good things start, though. Yeah, I think that's very true. So I know that you've been working on a novel. Mm. And I know that the genre you are interested in is one that has seen a lot of change, but also a lot of opportunity for discovery. And I'm just wondering if you can say something about what pulled you into this genre, and then maybe we can talk about what your discoveries have been writing it. So that's a really good question. And it's not one I've spent much time thinking about recently. So when I started writing, um, my first love was um, fantasy you know, to read. And so, of course, my my early, early attempts to write my own stories were fantasy ones. And and I was fairly convinced that was obviously going to be my genre. Um, so spent quite a lot of time, you know, kind of starting, I've probably got five or six unfinished fantasy novels that I started and, and didn't get anywhere with. And, and I always felt very... Um, I always felt that that things that were more sort of um, real life fiction were really restrictive. And I liked the kind of freedom that you had to just completely invent and, you know, um, uh, take a kind of different lens on stuff that might be happening in reality and, and kind of engage with it differently that fantasy gave you. And I'm trying now to remember how I went from that to the the and it wasn't I think any kind of particular um like I didn't decide it with any kind of very concrete plan I think I had the idea so I had done I had drafted a another and again sort of got three quarters of the way through another story idea which was another commercial kind of commercial fiction idea um before the one that I'm working on um, and found <laughs> that actually when you weren't having to invent everything, it was quite a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> like just being able to lean a little bit on the fact that, you know, that there was a kind of whole world building that existed that you weren't having to invent from scratch because that was always my absolute nightmare. I, I You know, characters and everything were, were fine. It was the world building that would just absolutely, you know, nothing made sense and it was just so much work. Um, so that first experience of writing fiction set in the, you know, in the real world, um, I was like, goodness, this is really easy. <laughs> 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 and then... Um, I do really enjoy reading romance. You know, it's it's a genre that I love reading in. Um, I, I think there are some issues with it as well and some challenges, and we might get on to, to talking about those at some point. But um, but I also, I really like the fact that it's very much a women's genre, you know, by women and for women. And I think that that space for for kind of a focus on women's stories, however flawed that might be in some aspects, traditionally or or kind of you know historically, um, I think that really resonates for me. Um, and 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 I do also particularly enjoy kind of sports romance as the subset within that. I like the um, 
I like that focus on people working to to be good at something you know the kind of effort and the the um the the I I think I I like the kind of competence uh I don't know that I go so far as to call it a kink but there's definitely a lean (laughs) lean. (laughs) well competence is quite sexy yeah absolutely and, and also, so, yeah, you compare it really nicely with, you know, if you've got somebody who's really competent in one facet and then you put them somewhere, you put them in a different environment or, you, you know, you challenge that in some way. That also, I think, is, you know, really juicy in terms of, of kind of narrative um, and, and writing. So, yeah, I think um, I had a very particular idea for this story, um, you know, a kind of particular spark that was the catalyst for the the kind of story idea um and you know it that has really stayed very robust throughout the quite a long you know it's been a good few years now that I've been working on this particular novel um and and that has stayed very kind of um it's still it's that has sustained it through all of these different drafts and you know the the wobble points so I feel like that's a hopefully a good sign (laughs) I love the term wobble points (laughs) I feel like we might need to adopt this one because I think all of us have these wobble points in writing books and I'm wondering so as you've been oh I have so many things Mm. <laughs> I covered there's, a lot of ground sorry no it's not that it's that there's so many things that are exciting about about what you're saying like the fact that we can love to read one thing and realize that we while we enjoy reading it it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to write that exact same thing if I could have chosen I would have wanted to be Diana Wynne Jones have you mm-hmm. heard of her She's mm-hmm. an amazing, she was basically like the pre-JK Rowling back in, you know, for those of us that grew up in the, that were born in the 70s. And then, um, and she was writing very similar, but, but just brilliant, you know, much more. Her, her husband is, was a, a middle English professor, talking professor. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, her, her um, fantasy and her, she did a, a lot of kind of re- real life portal fantasy type books. And then, and if I could have chosen, that would have been what I wanted to write. But, you know, I think it's exactly what you're saying. You can love something, but maybe that's not what you're actually, your sweet spot is for writing. Yeah, it reminds me of something that George Saunders said in A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. And it's possibly the greatest analogy for writing I can imagine because it's so bizarre, which was, I think his his analogy was something, I'm going to butcher the way he put it, but it was basically like, imagine that you had to put on this device that registered how much power you were generating, essentially, by dancing, and that you thought that you had to do it one particular way, 
Oh, and if you didn't generate enough power, you would die, I think was part of it. So you're like desperate to live basically. And you're trying to generate all this energy. And then he says, so, and you do it the way that you think you're supposed to and nothing happens. And then, so you just start trying a whole bunch of stuff until the energy level is sufficient. And he said, and then you might catch a view of yourself in the mirror and think, oh my God, what is that? Is that dancing? But at least I'm still alive. Yeah. And he was using this bizarrely as a metaphor for us writing in a style that generated enough excitement. Yeah. And that we have all these ideas about what that's going to be. Yeah. But it isn't necessarily anything to do with what we think it's supposed to be. No, no. And I think that for me, you know, school and, and you know, I was a English lit medieval but English lit you know undergraduate and I think that had kind of crystallized the idea for me that you know that fantasy was different and that had that kind of freedom and excitement but that you know real life fiction had had this kind of expectation and these rules and you know I I think at that point I had a sense of what that prose ought to be like that was very restrictive you know exactly as as you're describing um and I think there's still an element I still struggle with an element of that if I'm not careful I default into that kind of more academic passive voice overly wordy you know sentence construction in a kind of and it's always when I've separated myself from what is actually happening in the story I'm I've got a a um a level of remove and it starts showing up in the prose which is oh yeah I see I can see that it's so seductive it's like yeah. ooh, yeah. this is this is very official this is very yeah. Yeah. very clever what I'm saying here it's protective yeah. you know it's that kind of that distance feels safer somehow and, and of course it isn't because actually what happens is, you know, you just any energy in it just crashes by the time you've kind of, you know, crowbarred all of that kind of rigidness and, and distance to it. Um, so, yeah. I wonder if there's something about your shifting from fantasy into sort of real you know I don't know what is real we could go there for days but it just sort of more our reality yeah romance that I wonder if there is less room to have that distance do you find Mm. because in working with characters and doing all the character development that I know you do and in Mm. building relationships with them you're sort of removing all of that stuff and I can see where world building could in certain cases be a way that you're holding yourself separate from that relationship with character that's a really interesting point I think I think where it came from was more that it took me a long while to feel like I understood what the the kind of codes were about how detail reflected character mm. you know to be able to say okay this character looks like this 
and that's saying something particular about their background or about their personality or about their you know socioeconomic status or whatever it is I think that the part of what I liked when I was younger the freedom of fantasy was I could just make that up I could decide that for myself and I think that I I felt at that stage that I was always getting those kinds of things wrong that I wasn't interpreting them correctly in real life you know anyway so then the idea of taking that into fiction felt like I was going to be you know being equally clueless in fiction whereas for that reason fantasy felt safer um and I think that I still struggle so probably the hardest aspect of writing for me is writing prose Mm. you know planning (laughs) definitely the sweet spot could do that for us I was talking to a friend the other day who said you know just being in my my study and writing is my is my happy place and I was like god I wish I could say (laughs) (laughs) having written feels great (laughs) the bit before and the bit in the middle it doesn't it's that it's always more of a struggle than that for me um and I think that the part of the distance and the language aspect of it is I I if I can get into the um zone where I'm just seeing stuff happen or I'm you know kind of living through the action um and I'm just kind of noting stuff down in a very organic stream of consciousness way that's a usually a pretty good sign that I've lost that kind of academic distance prose thing but then it also isn't good prose <laughs> so then I find that I'm I'm so curious like because whenever I hear the word good I get nervous yes because you know, there are things that we like and things that we don't. And then there yeah. are things that are doing what we want them to do. And there are things yeah. that aren't. So I'm curious what you mean by not good prose. Oh, these are such good questions, Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think there's a there's a um, valid self-interpretation of good and there's an invalid self-interpretation of good. So there's definitely a part of myself that is like, you know, good means it's all neat and tidied up and you know nobody can point at it and find things wrong with it and which I think is an invalid you know definition of of good restrictive and unhelpful and then I think you know when I books I love where I'm like the prose in this is just you know absolutely doing the job is where it's almost invisible and it's 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 kind of curating the reader experience you know and it's that it's doing some really clever things with um illusions and kind of flashbacks and linking stuff you know with with the language that's being used to describe which just has a kind of echo of something you know else um and I think that's what I aspire to. And I feel like I very <laughs> rarely achieve. Um, and and I think for me, you know, one of the most helpful things um, that I'm sure came from one of your workshops was around the idea of doing this in layers. In really, yeah. 
because I was always trying to write you know I think most of why I ended up being so badly blocked was because I was I thought the only way of doing it was writing as a kind of single performance draft that I had to get everything right in one hit and it's just it's just impossible I mean I put some time and effort into trying and it is impossible I know you did (laughs) well it's like the difference between juggling 40 balls at once and like one or two yeah this is it and I think that has been a real game changer for me and so for me it seems to work better if I if I have a draft which is the kind of deep embedded um chaotic stream of consciousness uh kind of sensory intenseness um and then I have to tidy up I can't nobody else would want to read that <laughs> I mean oh you never like, know you never well, know but I think it's a sort of you may not want them to read it incomprehensible <laughs> but I think then that's the bit that I'm sort of hovering on the brink of now having done a first draft and sort of on the I, I had an aborted start for writing a second draft of this novel um and I'm just gearing up to to start that again and I think that's going to be the challenge for me is how do I strike that balance between kind of craft and I don't know how I don't even know what to call it sort of energy or or content you know mm. um and I, I don't feel like I've got any answers to that yet. I think I'm going to try a lot of different, you know, I, I did. So before I had to put a pause because kind of life stuff got in the way last year, um, I'd written a chapter, I'd written a first chapter, which I think I showed you. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I did with that was I broke it down into beats and I would do a kind of stream of consciousness per beat. And then I would go back and kind of write it. And the, the sizing of it, helped it feel more um manageable rather than seeing it as a whole chapter in one go um so I think that's what I'm going to try again but I suspect it will be lots of kind of playing with approach different approaches to until I get something that I think works and and I think the the minute I start kind of clamping down and being more rigid is always a warning sign that I'm missing you know I'm getting further away from where the where the story is and over worried about the the kind of yeah the outsides of it so I love conversations where people bring up the the thought of I love having written but then (laughs) the process before is difficult Mm. and yet as you're describing doing all of these experiments, I'm wondering if it was easy, do you think you'd enjoy it as much or if you would bother <laughs> yeah. writing yeah. books? So um, I have horses, as you know, and somebody said to me recently, um, you know, people, people who have horses uh, have horses because they enjoy things going wrong. <laughs> And my initial response was, I don't think so. And then I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) Because honestly, if you were the sort of person who didn't like things going wrong, you would get out 
of having horses five minutes after you'd got into having horses because the first thing would go wrong and you would be like absolutely not this isn't how I expect my life to go and you would walk away if you're still there after any appreciable period of time it's because some part of you goes oh it all went wrong fantastic right you know throw myself in you know um death or glory last stands against you know like oh yes brilliant bring it on (laughs) exactly and I think that we writers are the same way because it's like especially I mean especially fiction because it's like with non-fiction whenever I whenever I write it myself it's like I have some ideas I want to communicate perhaps I can fit in more or less than I expected but it's essentially I don't want to say transactional because it sounds so negative but it's more like there are some things that I want to share and then I will share them and it it isn't like suddenly I realize it's about you know trying to see sharks underwater when I started out realizing, you know, trying to talk about writing fiction. But with fiction, there is that element. Like it can suddenly be about going off to look for sharks when you thought you were like gathering mushrooms in the forest. Yeah. And I have to be, I have to be the sort of person who is kind of pleased with this as a possibility or enjoys the the risk, like playing chicken with the possibilities or something yeah. In order to continue doing this. I think that's right. And, and you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is I'm, I'm waiting for a diagnosis of ADHD. And whether or not that turns out to be accurate, one of the things that is really interesting is, you know, the, the ADHD brains look for challenge. That's, that's where they get their kind of motivation and their interest levels. You know, it has to be the right kind of challenging. And I'm absolutely sure that's why I keep coming back to writing, because something about it feels like the right kind of challenge. And, you know, I'm, as you know, not the sort of writer who just kind of um, opens a blank page and voyages. I I really, really enjoy the bit where I'm like, "Mm, I've got all these different pieces and I could put them together like this. Mm, That's not quite right. Mm, I could you know re- rearrange them or oh, maybe like that oh hang on no this bit goes there you know like I do that with and the color coding the color and coding <laughs> and the and the the sort of cartography of it is really stunning I really hope that once this book comes out you might I understand not sharing them before the book is out but once it is I really feel like the world needs to see your book planning notes oh well, I, I, I think I would be very happy to share them if there was anybody interested with in them in that point. I think it has been really, uh, I, I find that part of it endlessly fascinating. And I think um, there's an element of it that is tricking the mind to let you get to the writing bit. And there's an element of it that is um, finding ways to make visible what is otherwise intangible connections and things you know within the story and I think that has I I find it very easy to feel lost in the in the scope of a novel and using those structures helps me orient myself I find the the more solid the structure is the freer then I can improvise around it it gives me the the 
So one of the things that always worries me about writing, I think, again, going back to the ADHD thing, I, I alternate between not being able to start or being deep in hyperfocus. <laughs> and when I'm in hyperfocus, I'm, you know, that's like three hours later and I'm, I haven't stopped kind of thing. And I think that's how I always used to write. I didn't know there was another way of writing than that. And so there's always this sense of, um, you know, the kind of labyrinth thing that I'm just going to start wandering and then I'm going to find myself deep in the labyrinth and no clue how to come out. And the the idea of, it, you know, which again comes from the courses that I did with you, the idea of having that kind of container of a timer, you know, feels like the threads that then, okay, you can go deep, but it's fine because you're coming back out. And so giving myself those kinds of structures has been really helpful. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think it is. It's like we both want to kind of go deep in the cave yeah. and then we're afraid that we're going to be in there forever and yeah. we're just going to be in there with our characters and never see other people again or something. And it's I think what it is, is you can't write without being willing for it to bring stuff up for you. Mm. And I think that there was a lot that I wasn't looking at when I was younger and so I couldn't I couldn't go in because you can't just go in and look at the stuff you want to look at <laughs> you know yeah. actually if you're going to go in you're just going to see what's there and you know I'm sorry but it's there's going to be some stuff that you're you know and I think that's one of the most interesting things about writing is you know you start to see the stuff that your unconscious puts on the page, which isn't necessarily the bits that you've worked so hard on in terms of your character or your planned structure. It's the stuff you put around that that is just dredged up out of your unconscious and you're going, oh my God, what is that? You know? <laughs> what is that thing that I pulled out of the depths of the yeah. ocean? Um, so, and I think that that was a real turning point for me was, um, you know, you, you can't do this unless you're willing to look inside yourself as well as inside you know the, the story um and I think that so for example just this is a kind of small example um I when I was doing the first draft I noticed that all of my kind of small female side characters you know like somebody behind a coffee shop or a receptionist or whatever they were they were all defaulting to these terrible like you know um, formulaic kind of you know the the worst stereotype of a kind of you know um 1950s receptionist I mean I was like <laughs> where is this stuff coming from you know I consider myself feminist and god knows it's the 21st century and you know but but that was what my unconscious defaulted to and you know there's there's lots of stuff like that where you know at least with writing it isn't a performance art and you do get to go back and be like no they're a person and they have their own personality and you know not all characters are white <laughs> yeah you know, all of this stuff that is just your your unconscious you know you get a chance to to address it but I think that can also be really intimidating and it's really uncomfortable you know seeing the stuff that your cultural upbringing has has you know set up as the defaults in your brain this is why I find it so fascinating that everybody 
champions very young writers. Yeah. Because I feel like yeah. you need a lot of time, at yeah. least I did, to get to the I point did. where this feels like uh, not always comfortable, not yeah. always easy, but definitely valuable and meaningful yeah. way to spend my time. Yeah. I I was a really, uh, you know, I will put my hand up and, and say I'm a slow burn person. <laughs> I like slow burn romances and I am, you know, the the I one of the things I really struggled with and I gave it to one of the characters is that sense of you know people are always saying you know you clearly are very bright you've got loads of potential and I'd be like you know I just had no clue what I wanted what I could do people kept saying that to me and it felt really um intimidating because it it felt like they were expecting me to have a level of certainty that I absolutely didn't have and you know it's taken into me to my 40s to find you know actually a job that I know I'm good at that I really enjoy and you know to to have that sense of self I think that has enabled me to write in a different way and I think that you know it's really important for people that you know exactly as you say often culturally you know there's a lot of um lauding of really young writers and there's often a narrative that goes along with it which is you know since I came out of my mother's womb I just knew I wanted to write and you know I was writing novels from when I was five and (laughs) and you know but that's not everybody and actually there's there's nothing wrong with it taking you longer or coming to this in in fact one of my favorite romance authors um, Rosalind James started writing in her 40s I think in fact I'm not sure she even published her first book until she was in her 50s but you know has had a really strong career ever since produced you know produced I can't even remember how many books but it's well into the double figures um you know we're as a culture we utterly forget that people can you know that that actually many people come into their ability to do things you know in their middle ages or or you know or later and actually that brings a whole wealth of experience and a sense of what you want to say you know I think the thing I really um got excited about romance was when I it finally clicked that I could use the thing I'd liked about fantasy which was the ability to to talk about something hard from real life in a in through a lens that enabled you to kind of riff off it in different ways and when I realized actually you could do that with romance too you could do that with fiction too um and I think that one of the things that I've really found interesting about this is how to challenge and unpick the kind of quite narrow um structures of a kind of typical romance in a way that reflects my experiences of um, gender politics and my experiences of you know what it means to be a woman in the you know in, in kind of this century and this culture and and to start using that to I guess just to open up the possibility I think the thing that I find really challenging about a lot of kind of cishet romances is that the boxes are tiny you know Mm -hmm. the the expectation for what the female character can do and be like 
is minuscule and the same for the male character and um, you know I would say for the majority of people that actually doesn't reflect their experience actually however much you might like you know it might be you know and there's nothing god knows I've read a lot of um you know generic romance sometimes that hits the spot and sometimes you know you want a um a kind of something quick and easy that's just familiar and you know it hits the notes with that kind of um familiarity and and certainty that feels comforting but also I think you want to have a bit of freedom for more nuanced explorations of what it means to be female and what romance experiences look like and you know I think I've learned a huge amount from the the you know there's a, a massive genre now of LGBT romance and you know and MM romances and I think that for me I've been really interested in what are they doing that can be brought across to a more cishet narrative that doesn't invalidate you know the points that are being made in those more explicitly LGBT focused books. I think it's so exciting when it's like we think of at least I mean we're the same age so when I think of the first romance I read I was like 11 yeah. And I hid it from my mother. Yeah. And there was a lot of bodice ripping. Yeah. And, you know, it was like Fabio was the model for everything. And the man was very aggressive and the woman was kind of slightly, oh no, but yes. Oh yeah. no, but yeah, you know, yeah. this whole thing. Yeah. And so when I read romance now, I think it is so much more sophisticated and interesting and it was not a genre I traditionally read and now I do read it quite regularly especially the LGBTQ kind of area because I feel like it's furthering a conversation that's so important about what is possible for the ways that people interact with each other. Absolutely. And, you know, just a shout out to two of my favourite authors in this space who I think are really fantastic. One is KJ Charles mm-hmm. and the other one is Alexis Hall, who yep. I think, you know, are both do really thoughtful, intelligent, you know, challenging, well-written romances that have absolutely expanded my understanding of what a romance can be and what characters can be, you know, on the within the pages of a book. I was about to say on the stage, but I mean, in a I book. mean, it kind of feels that way when you yeah. read them because they both are so vivid. The other one I would say is Freya Marsky, who's only written yeah. two so far, but there's like a whole world in there. Yeah. And it's, I think that, yeah, like seeing this, it feels like an important conversation to be a part of while also being really fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, one of the biggest areas that has has been reflected back into a kind of cishet romances for mf romances for want of a better terminology um, is around consent 
And I think mm. that has been really fascinating. Something happens when you have an MM romance that oversets the conventions of non-consent that were traditional in MF romances. Because suddenly when you have two blokes, there is a whole negotiation that is valid in a way that was utterly unthought in the MF romances. And that has, I think, led to a completely different um, foregrounding of consent. And I think it says something not particularly complimentary about our kind of cultural um, assumptions that men's consent is more important than women's, that these are happening in the MM, you know, romances and not in the MF ones. But it has ponded or, or kind of leaked across into the MF romances. And there is a much better, you know, I, I can't read lots of the romances that I loved five, ten years ago. I go back to them now and I'm like, this is abuse. I mean, you know, this is like coercive control slash, you know, I mean, it's really, really bad, you know. Um, and I think that's something that has really shifted in the you know, wake of Me Too. And, and, you know, there's been a real, thank God, a real cultural shift around that and that you know but I think it's really interesting and I think one of the things that I'm sad about in MM romance is the fact that I think it sidesteps the challenge of having those conversations about women because it just erases them from the right. conversation <laughs> you know and and it, it allows so I think what it does do which is really great is it allows that space for men to access a more feminine sensibility and to to have a more a kind of wider variety of types of man um but it does that at the expense of just removing women from that conversation or from that kind of romantic conversation and and I think that there are people there are writers doing that in the MF romance world as well and you know some of those authors have also written um, MF romances um but I, I I just I think the whole thing is really interesting and, and it's I think that's part of that kind of intellectual challenge that makes it addictive to me. How do you take the rules of the romance and yet put in this stuff that is really exciting or interesting or challenging? And and I think that's one of the great pleasures of romance to read and to write is that it's such a expansive genre it you know it really it's like a style of cooking that really allows you to to innovate you know you can chuck anything at it and it will go yeah sure you know it's it's I think yeah I think this is the, the thing about genre fiction in the sense of it's it is it's like you have a certain kind of menu that you have yeah. to fill and yeah. then you decide what it includes because I've been having a, a similar element with mystery mm. and yeah. how there are I mean someone's got to die if it's a murder mystery of course yeah. but there is a whole narrative also around women not to completely change the topic but similar it's it's that the the expectation of the literary genre yeah is that the victim is probably going to be a woman killed by a man it's very yeah. common um depending on which type 
not necessarily ironically in a cozy, but in the the grittier kind of police procedurals, you just see the, the body count for women is huge. And yet statistically, the people who are the most often murdered are men. So it's very interesting to me. In some ways, I feel like romance reflects this as you were talking about like receptionists from the 50s, there is sort of a a social convention that we almost got caught on and this is a chance to bring it forward. And I feel like genre fiction in particular romance and mystery and ones that have particular conventions have the freedom to then advance other areas, which is so satisfying. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, you know, the... The um, I started not finishing or not watching, you know, either books or films or TV series that that have this whole trope about, you know, punishing women. So it's amazing when you start watching with that kind of in mind, how many romantic comedies, how many film romantic comedies actually just shame or punish the, the female lead for, for wanting a romance. You know, they're then put through all of these kind of extreme. We're expected to laugh at them because they were, you know, foolish enough to think that they wanted this guy. And, you know, it's kind of played for humour. But actually, if you look at what's happening, there's this really unpleasant vibe to it. And I think that happens in in mysteries, too, where, you know, if you're a woman, you're either the victim or you're the the um, villain because you know you wanted somebody else's man, or you like again. Yeah. These tiny you're like Lady boxes. Macbeth. Yes, this is it. You know, and actually, it doesn't reflect the the reality of experience or the reality of gender or any of these you know aspects. Um, but I completely agree. I think that's the great joy of genre is that it then, you know, you can take these risks and within that structure, you can innovate and push the boundaries. Yeah, it's like we're having a little revolution inside of writing fiction. And that to me is, makes it all worth it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, God knows that um, it's it's kind of incremental (laughs) progress and and I think one of the things I'm really conscious of is, you know, I'm there's stuff that I can see, and then that I have my own blind spots, and you know that's one of the the scary things about writing something that you put out there for other people to to read is, you know, some of those. So I've caught some of them because I can see some of them. And there are going to be other bits that some reader in the future is going to be like, oh, my God, she never even, you know, whatever it is about. Um, And I think that that, you know, that's a really interesting area of discomfort. It's very easy for that to silence you when you're a new author, I think, because the, the prospect of it feels so awful. But I think... That also is, again, we're not, as a cultural experience, we're not great at allowing people to make mistakes and learn from them, particularly those in the public eye. And actually, that is the only way people can learn. And the only way we can progress is if there's space for people to, you know, be flawed and to, to you know, make mistakes. 
um, and to do things imperfectly and to grow beyond that. Definitely. 100%. Well, I, I could keep talking about this all day, but I feel like that's the, the, such an important lesson that that's probably the one to end on that. I mean, part of the, the beauty of writing is to let ourselves make mistakes and to learn from them and to keep going and realize that we're still alive and we're still doing our best. And, and I think that's the other, you know, going back to the point you made at the beginning that maybe this is why writing is addictive for us and, and people who have a similar, you know, it's a, it's an art that I will always be improving at, you know, it, it, and that's, I think also what I enjoy about horse riding you know, however many years I do it, I'm still learning new things. I still, you know, come across a horse that is a different challenge. And, and you know, it has that in common with martial arts and other, you know, deep practices. And I think that, you know, writing is absolutely like that and endlessly rewarding and fascinating for that reason. Absolutely. Thank you so much for doing some some deep exploring on the on the writing today. Thank it's been you. a joy. No, it's been a great pleasure. It's always a great pleasure to talk to you. But it was I feel like we um had some oh and then the cats. In fact that was pretty good. I mean we lasted most of the <laughs> <laughs> most of the discussion before we got interrupted by cats. That's pretty good on both sides. Well and done. Well it's done. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.